Take your Bible this morning, if you would, and make your way to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Um, We're going to start something unique today. Uh, Everything's always changing, so even today there is a new element to what we're doing. And let me give you a little bit of background about what it is that we're about to begin. Uh, We strive, uh, we've been pretty consistent, to celebrate and remember the Lord's table once a month here at Grace. Uh, not the same week of the month so that we can keep from uh, falling into a kind of a meaningless routine. But we try to do that at least once a month, sometimes twice, because we need to do it often so that we remember. Um, what has happened in my own thinking and in my own uh, thoughts about our time of communion is often I feel as if we're studying a paragraph of Scripture and I'm hustling to get to the end so that we can almost tack on communion at the end. And that has been a burden on my heart. I don't like that uh, because that is not why we remember the Lord's sacrifice. We are not in a few moments going to remember our Lord's death to get it out of the way and to make sure we got our once a month in. Uh, It really is the high point of all that we do when we come together to make much of Christ and to remember that sacrifice. We could do that each week and yet... In this time that we set aside for our communion, I want to focus our attention specifically on the gospel and on the work of Christ at the cross. And so beginning today, each time that we set aside, and we always give you a week or two in advance to know that we're going to celebrate um, the Lord's table and remember his sacrifice, each time we do that, we're going to spend a focused time studying truths about the gospel that revolve around the cross and revolve around this sacrifice that we're remembering. I trust that it will make this a more meaningful time for us. It will deepen our appreciation for what we're doing. And uh, you know, emotion, biblical emotion in worship, sometimes in our Reformed tradition, emotion gets set aside as some kind of danger. Emotion is out throughout your scriptures. Those who have seen God most um, most vividly are most emotional about it. Those who have seen Christ in all of his glory are consumed with that. And so I want the time that we spend remembering the Lord's sacrifice to be informed. I want my own heart to be informed. In fact, I was just praying during the offertory that, that I would feel the weight of what we're doing today. And I pray that God would not just mystically make me sense something emotionally, but that because of the truth that we're about to talk about, because of the truths that we're about to think about, my heart would be moved in feeling deeply the gospel. That is biblical emotion. That is worshipful emotion. That's why the psalmist spun around, threw his hands in the air, fell down before his Lord. That is why we will in eternity bow before the throne, That is why we will shout our praises. That's why we make a loud noise. And uh, I want all of that to be a part of our time, each and every opportunity we have to come to the Lord's table. So we're going to begin a communion series on the cross. And and this will just be once a month. We'll focus this. At times, Matthew will dovetail with this. And we'll continue in our study in the next paragraph of Matthew. But for today, and for the inaugural Message. I would like to take us to Colossians chapter 2, and uh, this is where we'll focus our attention for the next several minutes. It's been my joy and blessing to read um, scripture with several men from our church, 
And uh, we have been reading most recently through the book of Colossians, one chapter every day of the week. And uh, we've spent our time in Colossians chapter 2 this last week, and the meditations that have come from this portion of Scripture are fresh on my heart and in my mind, and I want to come back to them with you this morning. We've been here before. If you've been with us from the beginning, we've actually studied Colossians 2, and if you go back before the beginning um, to the early, early days, there was a guy who came here, a really tall, skinny kid who came and preached And he was in Colossians chapter 2. This chapter has been so important in my understanding, and I want to come back to the deep well that is Colossians 2 this morning. I'm aware this morning uh, and this weekend, more pointedly than I probably normally am, that history has fallen on hard times in our country and in our society. Not just in our country, but in our society in general. I spent this weekend, uh, and I, as I spend a lot of time, on the History Channel. I love the History Channel. Those, that's good TV right there. The History Channel opens up um, into a world of past events that help us, that have shaped who we are today. And history should remain priority. Most young people today have a, uh, very little information about the history of our young country, relatively speaking, um, our very young nation, they, there is um, a dearth of historical teaching, let alone the history of civilization. I mean, the great civilizations of the past um, that have conquered and reigned and fallen, history has almost been set aside. We are here today as products of history. We're here as a church, as a product of history. The pulpit is in the middle of our worship time because of history. There was a time not too many years ago where a pulpit was something that was off to the side and elevated. And what stood here was a communion table used for the Mass. During the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, where God's people returned to God's Word and protested against the false religion of Rome, The communion table was set to the side as the opportunity to remember not to receive forgiveness and the pulpit was brought to the middle to establish the word of God as the centerpiece of the gathering. We are products of history. We're here this morning. We sing in our services. You sang corporately, some of you. You sang this morning out loud. People around you actually heard you. I know you don't like to think about it, but it happened. They heard you sing. And some of you, if you're not close enough to anybody, all you do is hear yourself sing. And then when you hear yourself sing, it's just really difficult to concentrate. But you sang this morning with other Christians because of history. Because it was not far after that Reformation and during that Reformation period that music was brought back to the congregation. And God's people began to sing praise to God because of the historical realities of the reformation if the word of god became central the singing of god's people and the collective worship also became a key component we're products of history that's just right here at grace church and we could go on and on and on about our historical background but there is a greater history that is at stake with you and with me this morning if we're followers of christ and that is the history that is wrapped up in the events of the cross That is a history that must affect us today. 
Scripture assumes that you and I are affected by what happened at the cross. Scripture assumes that our worship is informed by our knowledge of what happened at the cross. Your Bible is a revelation of God's plan culminating in the events at the cross. God's redemptive work of salvation was highlighted in the historical events of some 2,000 years ago. And Colossians chapter 2 is a great place for us to begin a reflection upon our ancient history as followers of Christ. It's a place that reveals more than just historical facts. It's not just a timeline. We're, we're not going to look this morning at, let's look at a timeline of events. <coughs> Excuse me. But rather, it is a revelation. It is an outline of divine and eternal realities that were taking place there at the cross. So that's why we come to Colossians chapter 2 to allow it to inform us, to come to the History Channel, if you will, scripturally, and to allow the Bible to reinform our thinking, to broaden our understanding, to deepen our appreciation of what happened when Christ suffered and died for sinners who would believe. Now, if you're in Colossians chapter 2, it is important for us to set the table for the paragraph that we're going to study today. Uh, I love the illustration. Uh, There are times when we parachute into a passage, right? We're flying up over top and we parachute in. We don't exactly know where we are. In fact, on the History Channel this weekend, I was watching a a show about our paratroopers in World War II and they dropped in and they had the joy of getting out their little compass and their map and finding out that they were nowhere near where they were supposed to be. And they didn't have a clue how to get there. They were wandering through the forest trying to find where they should be when we invaded Normandy. Here we are in Colossians, and unless we take a moment to get our bearings, unless we put the tarp over our head, get the flashlight out, and look at the map, we are going to be clueless, and we are in danger of misinterpreting our section that we're going to study this morning. And this is true in your Bible study and in your Bible memorization. This is true in every facet of your interaction with the Word of God. Context that is, the surrounding territory, is key to your understanding. We have a little phrase that we have known for years now that has become a mantra of my thinking, of David's thinking. We say it to each other. Our wives hear us say it, and that is, context is king. When it comes to Bible interpretation, context is king. We've got to know where we are. So let's look a little bit at Colossians 2 and lead up to the section that we're going to study Beginning in verse number 6 in particular, Paul turns a corner with the word therefore. Because of the realities that we saw at the end of chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2, because of Paul's confidence in the believers that were there in the church at Colossae, he commends them in verse 6 to a response. He says, therefore, in verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, if you have in fact received Christ, the gospel. You have believed. You are in Christ, which is Paul's favorite definition here of believers in, um, in this particular letter. If you are in Christ, then it should have a direct effect on you. And in particular, verse 6 tells us that what happened in our hearts when we receive the gospel should affect our feet the way we walk. 
our decision moment, our conversion moment, the, the moment of new life where our eyes were opened and our ears were opened and we responded to the gospel, that's supposed to affect the way we go through our daily lives. This is supposed to affect your business. It's supposed to affect your parenting. It's supposed to affect your studies, students. This is supposed to affect you. You're in Christ. And so that's what verse 6 tells us. And verse 7 explains that. Walking in Him, rooted and built up and established, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then Paul turns the corner right after telling them that if they're in Christ, it should necessitate a walk that is in Christ. He turns our attention to verse 8 and he warns them. And here is really the key to the context of where we'll study this morning. Because in verses 8 all the way through 15, we find Paul focusing specifically in regards to this warning. Notice that warning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental or um, base level spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. All right, here's our warning this morning to set our table for eating the meal of our section of Scripture. Here's the warning that sets it up. It props up what we're going to study. Paul is worried. He is concerned that the believers there in the church... Though they are in Christ, though they should be walking in Christ, that they are going to be led astray, led captive by other ways of thinking, by the cultural worldview around them. Does this sound familiar? This is our battle right here, right now. We are here, not on an island. We are here in the middle of a culture. And the concern that Paul has for the believer and indirectly for us here this morning at Grace Church of the Valley, he has a concern that we would be led captive into thinking like the world thinks, into buying into base arguments from the world, philosophies, ways of viewing life, worldviews, if you will, that don't flow from the pages of Scripture, that don't flow from the mind of God, but rather flow from the lost society around us. And so Paul, with this warning, sets up what he is about to say in verses 9 through 15. And he gives us that warning with this explanation beginning in verse 9. Now, if you're reading this and you're studying together with your family or you're reading in your personal time, verse 9 uses the first word, for. This is Paul explaining why it would be ridiculous for someone to buy into the philosophy of the world who is a follower of Christ. Alright, so Paul's going to set up the supremacy or the superiority of Jesus Christ to any other way of thinking. Why does it make no sense for a believer to follow the course of the world around them? Why does that make no sense? Well, because of verse 9. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. Why would you go elsewhere? Is Paul's argument. He bears the the fullness of God. Verse 10, And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Not only is Jesus God, but He is the ruler of rulers. So why would you go anywhere else? I remember when I was choosing a seminary, I looked at a number of seminaries that were committed to the the same theology and the same pastoral instruction as the Master's Seminary. But at the end of the day, those seminaries 
valuable, biblical, God-honoring seminaries were all chasing what was happening at the Master's Seminary. And I thought to myself, now why would I go to that seminary when I can go to the one that they are pursuing or exemplifying or imitating? I want to go to the real deal. I want to go to the one that's at the top of the game. I want to go to the one that is going to provide the ultimate example. And here, Paul uses the argument, if Jesus is the head of all rule and authority, why would you go elsewhere? He's the ruler of rulers. He's the authority of all authorities. Verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by by the circumcision of Christ. Paul goes on to say, not only is Jesus God and not only is he our authority, our head, the ruler of all rulers, but he is also our circumcision, not a physical circumcision. Jesus is the the means of a new heart. So you're in Christ, verse 6 and 7. You're walking in Christ, and now you're in danger of being sucked into thinking like the world. If Paul were here, he would be concerned that you are living the American dream, better known as the American nightmare, because the American dream is not a dream. It is a temporal, momentary uh, joy that ends in destruction. And Paul would be concerned that here you are in Christ and you're being sucked into believing what the, the world says you should believe. Why? Because Jesus is God. That's ridiculous. Why would you go to the world? Secondly, Jesus is the authority of all authorities. Thirdly, Jesus is your circumstance. He has transformed you. Why would you go elsewhere? He changed you from the inside out. He goes on. This isn't even our text, by the way. This is just getting started. All right? We're going to get there in a minute. All right? He goes on and he says, talking about that circumcision in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who is raised from the dead. In other words, Paul goes on to say, not only is Jesus the cause for your internal, your heart circumcision, your radical transformation, the removal of a heart of stone and an implantation of a heart of flesh that is the promise of Jeremiah 31 in the New Covenant. Not only is that your testimony, but Jesus is also your baptism. You have been immersed in Christ. You died to yourself in Christ. You've been raised to life in Christ. Christ has given you life. Why would you go elsewhere for wisdom? Why would you buy into the popular thinking of the day? Why would you, why would you go there? It doesn't make any sense. And then Paul turns, and it's as if he hasn't said enough already. He hasn't dumped enough theological emphasis on the people here in the church at Colossae. It's not like he hasn't dumped enough theological emphasis on us. He turns and he gets personal in verse 13. He takes it from the theological realm, from the theoretical realm, and he turns it and he goes right for the juggler. He goes right into our lap and he looks at us right in the face. He gets close and he gets personal and he says, And you, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is, God did it in Christ. Paul here then turns in verse 13 
and in the personal address of verse 13, Jesus is our forgiveness. Why would we go elsewhere from the one who has redeemed us, the one who rescued us from our sin? Why would we go to the world's philosophies when we know this one? That brings us to this text, and I want to study verses 13 through 15 with you this morning. And I want to quickly look at just four truths, four truth statements that were radically and permanently altered at the cross if you're in Christ today. If you're here and you are one of the redeemed, you are one of, verse 6 is, in Christ individuals. There are four truths revealed in these simple verses that were radically transformed at the cross. I want to look at them with you, beginning in verse 13. We see number one truth, the first truth statement that we find in verse 13, which really is the, the heading over this section. You were dead. And the cross brought life. You were dead and the cross brought life. It doesn't get any better than this. Notice verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. You were dead. Paul here is addressing the Christians. He's talking to a specific group of people and he's calling them to remember truth about themselves that was altered at the cross which would then guard them from leaving Christ in the wisdom of Christ found in the Word and buying into a, a worldview, a philosophy that comes from the culture around them. He says they were dead. This is a present tense. It's an interesting thing because in your English translation it says you were dead. And, and that's right. But Paul uses a verb use here, which we can't do this, but it has an ongoing reality to it. So Paul says it wasn't just that it was a point in time. This was your state of being. This was what you were born like, and this is what you were, period. It was an ongoing reality, always the case, never altered. You were dead. You were dead. Lifelessness was our constant and unwavering state of life before Christ. We were born and lived as flatliners in our hearts. You've watched the television shows. You've seen it maybe in real life in an ER or in a hospital setting when the, when the beep goes solid and the flat line happens and the, the heartbeat is gone and in time there will be a declaration that there's no more life here because there's no vital signs. There's no activity going on involuntarily to live. You and I were born and we existed as dead people. There was no spark of divinity in us. There was no spark of life. Apart from Jesus Christ, we were flatlined spiritually. No vital signs whatsoever. We were dead, and the cross brought life. Ephesians verse one, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, recounts this same theme, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, notice Paul's watermarks here. He gives us watermarks or, or stamps of what it was that we were, the, the description of our deadness. Verse 13, and you who, who were dead, in what sphere? In your transgressions. Okay, verse 13, in your trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh. These are two descriptors. They're watermarks of your deadness apart from Christ. Number one is in your trespasses. This is the sphere of your deadness. It is sin. You are consumed with it. You are born with it. You are guilty of it. All of us are brought into this life dead in trespasses, dead in sin. This is the first watermark. We are in rebellion against God in our actions and our attitudes. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that we are not only alienated from God, we are hostile in our thinking and we are evil in our deeds. We're dead. We are lifeless and we are living in transgression. We walk in transgression. We exist in transgression because our hearts are dead apart from Christ and apart from the work of the cross. Second part of that description is are the uncircumcision of our flesh. And, and that's a difficult concept for us who are, are Gentile believers because this, this doesn't relate as well to us, but there was an uncircumcision part of our existence. In other words, our flesh had not been cut away. And when Paul speaks of the flesh here, he's speaking of our sinful nature, the reality of who we were as sinful people. It had not been dealt with. It had not been cut off. We had not been, we had not been dealt with. Our flesh was there and it was ever present. And our deadness was just a, a, a day-to-day exposure of our flesh. Our sinful nature. Not only were we transgressing, but we were living in uncircumcision. That is, we were living with a nature that defied God's holiness. This is important, folks. This is important. You were dead, but the cross brought life. Verse 13 goes on to say, not only were you dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him. God made you alive if you're in Christ this morning. He made you alive because of the cross work. This deadness is contrary to popular opinion, right? This is not popular. Sinners are not almost saved people walking around waiting for the opportunity to believe. They are without vital signs. They are not seeking. They are not longing. They are not waiting for the life raft to be thrown to them as they float along in the sea of life. They are floating upside down, face down in the water, and they've been there from the time they were born. They're dead. They can't reach out to the life raft. They can't call out for help. They don't want to be rescued because they have no vital life. What a powerful description. Romans chapter 3 is a place that we should have marked in our Bibles because Romans 3 describes this in verse 10. You know this verse. None is righteous, no, not one. But it goes on to say, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the state of dead in trespasses and sins. And then this miracle of transformation takes on a whole new light. Folks, when you, were, when you were converted, when you were born again, when Christ worked the miracle 
in you of salvation, this is what he accomplished. There at the cross, paying for your sin, he bought life for you. We now are alive in Christ. At the cross of Jesus, God made us alive together with Jesus. He then is the glorious truth of the cross. You get this, folks? Does this set in? There was no chance, no chance for you apart from Christ. We are remembering, in just a minute, we are remembering the only opportunity we ever have to fellowship with our Creator. We are remembering a miracle that is beyond imagination, dead to life because of the cross. Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. John 1, verses 11 through 13 says, And He came, that is, Jesus came, to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the miracle. This is the the heading, the primary miracle of the cross. Dead, sinful humanity was rescued and given life. That is the greatest miracle, and flowing from that in the rest of these words in verses 13 through 15, there are three complementary components that flow directly from this. And you can just watch these come out of the text. You can see them right on the pages here. He's going to describe now further that reality of deadness to life, and we're going to see the last three quickly. Truth statements about us that were permanently and radically altered at the cross. We were dead. The cross brought life. Secondly, we were guilty. And the cross brought forgiveness. Verse 13 goes on to say, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here is the issue of our sin again brought to the forefront. Our pitiful and wicked hearts were cleared of their guilt before a God who knows no sin. He forgave us at the cross. We were condemned. We were guilty. The judgment was passed. There's no hope. But the cross happened. The cross was God's miraculous plan. The cross was His sovereign, eternal goal to put His grace on display in sinful humanity who would believe in His Son and be rescued from death to life, to be brought from guilty to redeemed, forgiven. Trophies of His grace. He forgave us of all of our transgressions. It is final and complete. Beloved, this is the truth that we read about in Isaiah 53. This is the great exchange that that takes place in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This is the reality of our salvation. It is called, the, the fancy term for it is justification. It's the great exchange. What's the great exchange? It was that the righteous and holy God of heaven, our Creator, the owner of our existence, 
in his kindness and according to his will, placed upon his own son our sinful guilt. And in his son, he provided forgiveness. He looked upon us as if we lived his righteous life. He looked upon him as if he lived our wicked existence. And he punished him accordingly. And he forgave us. Gave us. God's forgiveness of sinners is not a removal of guilt, but rather a transfer of our guilt to be dealt with by someone else. And there was only one who could do it the perfect Lamb. If you're here this morning and you are in Christ, this is your history, this is who you are. You were dead and now you're alive and you were guilty and now you're forgiven because of the cross. It's not something you wear around your neck and don't think about. It's your life. It's my life. Verse 14 goes on. Not only were we dead and now alive, not only were we guilty and now we're forgiven, but we were indebted and the cross brought cancellation. We were indebted And the cross brought cancellation. Verse 14 goes on by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Folks, this is a powerful, powerful word picture for us today. Paul here uses, he borrows from his culture, he borrows from the Roman society where the record of debt was a sheet of parchment that that the lender would fill out what he had given to the one who owed. And the one who was in debt would sign that document saying, I borrowed this from this individual. And the lender would keep that document. And he could bring that at any point to a court and say, look, the debtor signed it. He said that he did this and he owes me this. This is the picture he has here before us. But the problem here is that we're not talking about money. We're not talking about possessions or resources. The lender who filled out this document and the debtors who signed it are dealing with life and death. You and I have a sin mortgage. And the payment to fulfill that mortgage is death. Romans 6.23 For the wage of sin is death. That's the only payment. We were indebted to God because of our sin. We've said it before. Because we are sinners, this one truth never changes. Someone must die. Because I'm a sinner, somebody has to die. It will either be me and an eternity apart from, from God in eternal torment, Paying the just penalty for my sin an eternity apart from God in torment. Or in the miracle of the cross, it will be Christ. He will die for me. He will die for you. And we will be offered life who are dead. And we will be offered forgiveness who are guilty. And we will be offered cancellation of the debt. Wiping away the writing on the parchment. Voiding the document. 
The old King James has such a precious translation that it says, blotting out the handwriting. Maybe when you were a kid, you would write a note to somebody and you didn't want anybody else to see the note and so you'd take your pen and, and if you're really creative, you'd make circles because you can't read through the circles and you'd try to blot it out. You'd try to act like it wasn't there. What happened at the cross was our debt, a real debt, a debt that could only be paid for with ultimate and eternal death, was blotted out. That debt record was wiped clean because of the cross. Notice the last phrase, the last little sentence in verse 14. This God set aside, that is our debt, He set it aside and He nailed it to the cross. This powerful word picture takes us one step closer to the cross. Not only was the, was the document done away with, not only was the document voided and said, payment done. That document was taken and it was nailed to the cross. Come close to the cross. You'll see your document if you're in Christ. It's there. He's bearing it. He's paying for it. Look at the Lord. Remember His bloody and broken body. And look at the pile of records of debt that are stamped on His cross. This is our history. This is supposed to affect us. You ever wonder why? Just read about Peter. I read about Paul. I read about the historical champions of the faith. The William Careys. The John Edwards. The Charles Spurgeon. What? The Martin Luthers. The John Calvins. I mean, whoa, what was with these people? I mean, I'm just a lazy, spoiled, middle class American. What, what, did, what, what did they have? What did they eat? What did they drink? What happened? They were close to the cross. And when we are close to the cross, we cannot help but be consumed with gratitude and affection that a holy God would do this work for us. Last truth. I don't want to be done. I want to just keep going. Last truth is in verse 15. We were captive and the cross brought freedom. It says in verse 15 he, dis, 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, that is, in Christ. There at the cross, the authorities and the powers of Satan and his, his dominion were disarmed. This is the final historical reality that we're going to look at this morning. We were captive and the cross brought us freedom. At the cross, God disarmed and humiliated the efforts of Satan and his demonic forces. Their efforts are for naught. It will never work out. Satan will never win. God has triumphed. He paid sin's penalty. He now saves sinners. He now has conquered death and sin at the cross. And in the resurrection of Christ, He has offered new life. You and I were born in slavery. We were born in captivity. We have known nothing but captivity apart from Christ. You may be here this morning and you're not in Christ. You're not a follower of Christ. And you may think to yourself, it's you people who are in slavery. That's true. Our freedom in Christ is also 
taught to us in Scripture as slaves of Christ. But understand this, as followers of Christ, we are slaves of a holy, righteous, holy, loving, and holy, sovereign God who has nothing but His glory in mind and our good at His heart. And therefore, we are servants to the greatest Master imaginable. You, unbeliever, if you're here this morning, it is our burden that you understand that your slavery will end in eternal judgment. It is not for your good. It is not for God's glory, which is why you were created by Him. It is for your destruction. It is for your eternal punishment. This is your slavery. And this was our slavery. We join you in saying, we know what this is like. The idea that Paul uses here in verse 15 is that he disarmed the rulers and he put them to open shame. And we don't really get that either by triumphing over them. The idea here is really powerful. It's a Roman army picture. And the Roman armies, when they went in and conquered another army, would bring the, the generals and the lieutenants and, and the leaders of that force back into their, their cities. And let me tell you, there was no rules about dealing with prisoners of war. What they would do was they would put those people to open shame and they would triumph over them. They would take them. They would disrobe them. They would beat them. Oftentimes they would hook them physically to each other through parts of their flesh and they would walk through the streets so that the people of the conquering nation could glory in the triumphal entry of the, of the conquering army. The people would throw things at these individuals. They would spit upon them. It was the ultimate shame to say, not only have we beaten you, now we will shame you. This was the work that was accomplished at the cross. Not only were we freed from our captivity, but the captives themselves were open shame. They were made public spectacles. What was promised in Genesis 3.15 had taken place. The serpent had bruised the heel of the servant, but the Son of God had crushed the serpent's head. This was the gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us that though we face the enemy daily who continues to desire to thwart God's plan, who continues to set us on a track apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the wisdom of heaven, who is constantly uh, stalking us, prowling about, seeking whom He may devour, He is ultimately disarmed. We know the end of the story, and the cross conquered Him. He doesn't have power over us. He cannot control us. We don't have to do it. Satan didn't make you do it if you're in Christ. Because he no longer has that power. He's been conquered. We were captive. And we've been set free. This is our history. This is what's true of us this morning. And this is what we bring to the table. This is what we're remembering. It's these truths that have to grip us. That must consume us. And that must fill our lives with the anticipation of serving our great God who has rescued us. We live differently. We buy differently. We eat differently. We do everything we do differently because now we are alive and we were dead. Now we're forgiven and we were guilty. Now our debt's canceled and we were bankrupt. And now we are free when we were captive.
Paul's point here in all of that was to guard us from buying into our world system. He goes on in verse 16 down to the end of the chapter to guard our hearts with those same truths from legalism as well. Don't cave to worldly philosophies and don't cave to mere external legalism that is trying to keep a list of do's and don'ts. You have Christ. You have these realities. This is your history. Don't buy the cheap substitute. Give your entire being to Christ. Chapter 3 begins, If then you've been raised with Christ, if this is your history, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where Christ, who is your life, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You wonder why you have a hard time talking about the things of the Lord with others? Ever wonder why it's tough to share with somebody what you're growing in and learning in in your spiritual walk? Ever been around a believer who, who is just really tough to talk to about the Lord? Are we, are we consumed and are we aware and are we renewed in our thinking of our history Because it will safeguard us from buying into the world system. It will safeguard us from mere legalism and externalism that has no power. And it will set our course on setting our mind on things above and our focus on Christ. If this is our reality, not only would we die for Christ, we would actually live for him too. Unbelievers this morning, please turn to Christ. If you believe this morning, he will give you the privilege of being a child of God. And he will do these miracles again in your life. This is your privilege to hear the message of the gospel. Respond in humility. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. There's no other way of salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved.